why is it that every time we talk about countries from the south, the first allegation is corruption? Last time I checked, in the USA and the UK and Europe, they're riddled with corruption, but nobody says that they're not capable of achieving their objectives because of corruption. Why is it that we're not talking about the fact that these countries became independent, haven't allowed those countries that colonized them to extract significant portions of their wealth such that we had no proper housing, no proper education, no proper healthcare systems, no proper legal systems, no proper across the whole street, and certainly nothing to do with building social capital like community development and cultural enterprises. And what has happened is therefore that we have spent the time since independence trying to give our people what the global north has taken for granted and has supported by the extrication of centuries of wealth to give their people out of our blood, sweat and tears. Now when our blood, sweat and tears finances the industrial revolution and the industrial revolution then causes the climate crisis and then I have to pay for the consequences of the climate crisis because of the industrial revolution financed by our blood, sweat and tears, then I think they have no moral authority to tell me anything about the financing of the climate or about why we don't have enough. Prime Minister Mia Motley of Barbados there, firmly rejecting the accusation that corruption is the source of indebtedness in countries in the global south. Since coming into office, she has been a strong advocate for SIDS issues and reforming the global financial architecture as well. Hello and welcome to Small Islands Big Picture. I'm Matt Bishop, an academic at the University of Sheffield in Northern England and one of the directors of the Resilient and Sustainable Islands Initiative, or RESI for short, the network behind this podcast. And I'm Emily Wilkinson, Senior Research Fellow at ODI and Co-Director of RESI. That snippet of Mia Motley talking draws attention to the focus for today's episode, which is about debt and why so many small island developing states, or SIDS, are amongst the most indebted countries in the world. We'll be discussing this issue and explaining why pointing the finger at corruption and mismanagement of public funds is wrong in the case of SIDS and unhelpful and misleading and in fact is a complete distortion of reality. Welcome to Small Islands Big Picture because what happens to them alters the big picture for all of us. By and large, SIDS are amongst the most heavily indebted states relative to the size of their economies. These debt burdens are problematic in many respects, not least because the cost of servicing them crowds out government spending on important priorities like healthcare, education and infrastructure development. But this indebtedness is not really their fault. It generally reflects their high level of vulnerability. So, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, they are highly exposed to disproportionately damaging exogenous shocks. But this vulnerability is rarely considered when development finance is being allocated. So they have to find money from other sources. According to Rashid Bouiha, one of our co-directors in the Resi Network, an expert economist who works on debt sustainability in SIDS for the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, or UNCTAD, they receive seven times less finance than the least developed countries, or LDCs. This issue of debt sustainability is very endemic to SIDS, mostly due to their high vulnerability to external shocks like climate disasters, for example. A seed state can manage its debts, but it just requires one and only one natural disaster to turn all the debt indicators into the red, not to say the very red, often for many years or even decades. 
So there are huge amounts of financial flows which could have been used to improve health, education, infrastructures or other key sectors instead, but which are instead diverted away to service this unchecked debt burden. The more I work on seeds, the more I realize that this endemic debt issue is just the tip of the iceberg of a more profound and serious problem, which is seeds' capacity to find and make the right place, not only in the global economic and financial systems, but also in the broader geopolitical environments. I truly believe that seeds can extremely benefit from strengthening their collaboration and speaking in one voice in diplomatic and political channels. So that was Rashid highlighting the need for SIDS to speak out collectively um, on the issue of debt and collectively push for change. In this section, our explainer, we wanted to break down the subject of indebtedness into more digestible chunks. It's quite a technical topic. Um, So we can understand better how the situation of high indebtedness has occurred in SIDS. To help us do that, we're enlisting the support of an expert in development finance and an expert in the unique challenges faced by SIDS in relation to debt. I'd like to welcome Gail Hurley. Gail has spent 20 years working on these issues for a range of organisations, shaping global agendas on the subject, especially at the United Nations. Welcome to Small Islands Big Picture. We have 10 questions for you, so let me get started. The first one is, what is debt? This might seem like a silly question to ask, but indebtedness is not really like our own credit cards, the debt that we have um, as as individuals or a household, is it? Thank you for having me. It's nice to join you today. And of course, it's called sovereign debt because historically it used to be the debt of the sovereign. So the king or the queen, who of course used to get themselves terribly indebted in the olden days, pursuing wars with their neighbouring countries, especially here in Europe. But today, sovereign debt is the debt of a government. And governments owe money to a variety of lenders, who include other governments, So that kind of debt is called bilateral debt, and they owe money to multilateral entities like the World Bank, and then also private bondholders and commercial banks as well. So Gail, why in your view are SIDS seemingly so badly affected by debt compared to bigger developing countries or indeed developed countries? Actually, contrary to what many people might think, many developed countries actually have very high debt levels with Japan, of course, being a very famous case in point. So it has the world's highest debt-to-GDP ratio at over 260% this year. But one of the key reasons why Japan is able to sustain such a high debt load is that, like many other developed countries, it's able to borrow much more cheaply than developing countries and many small island developing states. So Of course, here in Europe, our governments can borrow at rates of around 1% to 4%. But for poorer countries, that can be up to 14%. But for many, SIDS probably averages around 8% to 9%. But there are other reasons for high debt in SIDS. So they include 
in particular high financing needs following extreme weather event like a hurricane. So if we think to what happened in Grenada in the Caribbean in 2004, Hurricane Ivan devastated the island and damage was estimated at over 1 billion US dollars or 200% of GDP, which is huge. And then when Hurricanes Maria and Irma struck Antigua and Barbuda in 2007, Barbuda became uninhabitable. So, of course, these disasters have immense relief and reconstruction costs and typically only a fraction of the aid needed to help them recover is ever forthcoming from the international community. And unfortunately, these types of disasters are only going to become more frequent and severe with climate change. So to whom do SIDS owe most of their debt? And I guess, why are there differences between uh, different SIDS in, in terms of who they owe debt to? There's different sets of lenders, like private bondholders or other governments or multilateral lenders like the World Bank. So different countries definitely have a different mix of lenders. So you'll tend to see that low-income countries will owe more of their debt to lenders like the World Bank, or to other governments, while higher income countries tend to use the bond markets more to raise a lot of their finance. So among SIDS, that's also the case. So some of the higher income countries like Antigua and Barbuda, Barbados, Jamaica, for example, would owe more of their debt to the private sector, to the bond markets whereas some of the smaller, more aid-dependent Pacific islands, more of their debt would be owed to multilateral lenders like the World Bank or Asian Development Bank. But I think what's really important to point out to your listeners is that we've seen a really big growth in lending over recent years by countries such as China and several countries in the Middle East, so Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, for example, and they've become the largest government lenders to many countries by far over recent years, including many small island developing states. OK, so what explains the fact that some SIDs are significantly more indebted than others? Is it primarily about their exposure to exogenous shocks or are there other reasons too? Oh, wow, that's definitely not an easy question to answer. I think some can definitely just be unlucky as I mentioned before, in relation to Grenada or Antigua and Barbuda, that um, many SIDS do have extreme climate vulnerability, which is only worsening over time. I think some countries are improving the way they manage debt. But I think one unfortunate reality is that Several SIDs are considered ineligible for development aid or loans on cheaper terms from the main multilateral lenders or the aid partners because they're classified as high-income countries and therefore they're considered too rich for this kind of finance. So that means they have to borrow on more expensive market terms, even though their economies are extremely vulnerable to environmental and economic shocks which can cost them a huge amount of money. Is the problem primarily one of the size of the debt burden or is it more the cost of servicing that debt? I think you mentioned as well that the impact like 
having debt has on other spending or other less obvious consequences that we should be thinking about? Yeah, I think the size of the debt matters in the sense that if your economy is growing very slowly or is even disrupted by a massive climate shock, but every year you're consistently taking on increasing amounts of debt, there's a risk that can quickly become unsustainable in terms of the overall debt load. But I think it's really important to bear in mind that the cost of servicing your debt every year also matters. So you tend to see that with a lot of multilateral debt, for example, it has a lower interest rate and a very long maturity. So the debt service burden on that in any given year may actually be quite small, whereas private debt can carry a high interest rate and a very short maturity. So maybe a bond can have a maturity of around five years. So the debt service payments on that type of debt will be much higher in a given year. It's useful to look at one of the key ratios for the burden of servicing that debt, which is used by the IMF and the World Bank, and that's the debt service to budget revenue ratio. So that basically shows how much of a country's revenue in a particular year a debt service is consuming. And worryingly, that data shows that this ratio is currently at an all-time high. Recent research by Development Finance International, a UK-based NGO, shows that debt service currently averages a massive 38% of budget revenue across 139 countries of the global south and 57.5% of budget revenue for low-income countries in 2023. It's huge. I wanted to look at debt service spending compared to spending on climate adaptation in SIDS. And I found that Papua New Guinea and Sao Tome and Principe are spending over 70% of their budget on debt service. The Bahamas is spending over 50% of its budget on debt service, and the Seychelles, it's over 40%. So these figures are huge, and there's no question in my mind that high debt is crowding out essential spending on areas like climate adaptation and other social sectors as well. So these figures are massive, really. So then, Gail, essentially there are some countries that are spending more than half of their, um, their government revenue on simply servicing debt. But are they getting the debt down when they do that? Or are they merely just servicing the interest? Is is their fiscal space improving at all when they do that? So again, the picture varies widely across countries. So the interest burden on that debt will be higher for countries that have been borrowing from the bond market. And the interest burden will be lower for countries that have been borrowing primarily from the multilateral lenders. But what I found in analysing how much debt service countries and SIDS have been paying over the last couple of years is that interest payments as a percent of GDP are up to 4% in some countries. And yet those countries are spending less than 2% or 3% of GDP on things like education or healthcare. So in some countries, yes, absolutely, the interest payments are higher than what they're spending on essential social services, which is really shocking. What are 
some of the solutions to these really deep challenges. There have been a number of debt restructuring and relief initiatives. Are they feasible or attractive for SIDS or are there better options? No, definitely many solutions have been floated and the G20 launched something called the Common Framework to support heavily indebted countries to renegotiate their debt if they got into trouble. So a few countries have benefited from that. So Suriname, Chad, Zambia, for example, Sri Lanka as well. But what is that they still have a really high debt service to revenue ratio of on average 48%, even after these debt restructuring deals. So in my view, they're not a solution or a long-term solution to the problem and debt relief absolutely has to be on the table. But other good ideas include automatic pauses in debt service when a major shock strikes, lowering borrowing costs. And then, of course, last but not least, donors really need to honour their promises to supply more concessional finance. That that brings us on, actually, to, to the next question, which is that we hear a lot about novel financial instruments linked to environment and climate progress. So debt for climate swaps, blue bonds and things like that. What are they? Where do they fit into this picture? They're a real mixed bag of instruments. So blue bonds are debt instruments whereby there's a promise to invest the funds mobilised in environmentally friendly projects connected to marine and coastal environments. So things like sustainable fisheries or tackling marine plastic pollution, things like that. I think they can definitely be useful and are playing a role, but it's also important to bear in mind that they're still debt instruments, so they are new debt. And then debt for nature swaps, very different. And they're where bilateral debt or private debt is swapped in exchange for a commitment from the debtor country to spend the funds that would have been used on debt service on social or environmental projects. There have been quite a few of these swaps. But the range of circumstances in which they can be used is quite limited and they often take a lot of negotiation and are mostly small in scale. So they're mostly not going to release the hundreds of millions that are needed for investments in sustainable development. So where, Gail, in your view, should SID's advocacy be going on this issue? What kinds of demands should they be making at the global level? I think that's a really good question. Recently, we've seen, for example, the Bridgetown Initiative led by Mia Motley, and she's led a coalition of developing countries to call for key changes in the way development finance is is organised and is delivered to developing countries and small island states. So they've called for things like suspending interest payments on debt while countries battling extreme climate event or a pandemic They've been calling on the development banks to dramatically scale up concessional lending for climate resilience uh, to the tune of a trillion dollars. They've called for scaling up and speeding up of debt relief and a new fund to help countries deal with climate shocks. And our final question, Gail, is one for our younger listeners. So you've had a fascinating career, as you've said, working at the UN for a long time, engaging with politicians, governments. What advice would you give them for breaking into this world? Listen, there's so many more opportunities out there today to have a purposeful career. 
including in the financial sector, which has often been portrayed as the enemy, but there's now so many more exciting roles focused on sustainability and ethics. I think one of the things I valued has been the opportunity to work across civil society organisations, the UN, the private sector. And it was the civil society sector that gave me my big career break initially. So while it's perhaps not necessarily as well paid as the private sector, there's a lot of opportunities to do meaningful work there, as well as progress your career. So huge thanks there to Gail Hurley for providing some really insightful analysis regarding the debt challenge facing SIDS and providing us with a great foundation for the rest of the podcast. Uh, Before we move to get on deeper into this topic, we thought we would pause briefly and talk about what else is going on in the wider SIDS world and how Resi is contributing to it. What have you been up to since the last podcast, Emily? Yeah, I've been travelling quite a bit. I've been in the Marshall Islands for two weeks, which is in the North Pacific. The Marshall Islands is one of these atoll states that we spoke about on the last episode. It's very low-lying, really does face this existential threat from climate change, from sea level rise, and in the meantime has a number of issues with coastal erosion, some of the islands losing populations and people travelling to the US for education and work, meaning that some of these very small atolls are very sparsely populated. Really interesting place. There's one atoll by that is um, heavily populated. People were relocated from um, another island in the Kwajalein chain of atolls, which is now a US military base. Um, and, and the population was moved out of there onto a smaller island. So, you know, really difficult problems with a small atoll, about 11,000 people living there and issues with uh, water and sanitation. And very impressive to see that they are thinking very seriously about adaptation, building coastal defences, improving services and so on with all those challenges. Um, Matt, what have you been up to over the last couple of weeks? I'm still stuck on terra firma, but what I've been working on is our future forums. At Resi, we are collaborating with uh, various different partners, some UN agencies, UNDESA and UN Alls, AOSIS as well, and we are hosting next March uh, what we're calling the SIDS Future Forum, which is geared towards feeding in expertise to the policy making process and hopefully helping to shape some of the debate in the run up to the huge fourth international conference on SIDS that takes place in Antigua Barbuda in late March 2024. So it should be a very exciting agenda there. And we're going to be talking a bit more about the SIDS4 conference and planning for that event in our next podcast. Each episode, we invite expert guests to help us get behind the headline-grabbing stories and paint the bigger picture about an issue that SIDS face. I'm delighted to welcome two guests today. We have with us Enrico Gaveglia. He is the resident representative at UNDP in the Maldives and supports the view that all development finance should be climate finance. I'd also like to welcome here Shakira Mustafa, who is an economist and former colleague at ODI. Shakira works with the Center for Disaster Protection, focusing on disastrous finance and the intersection between debt and public finance more broadly. Welcome to you both. I'll kick off with a big question, maybe. If you can describe the debt sustainability challenges that SIDS face in particular and what the implications are for their sustainable development and for achieving their priorities, maybe 
Shakira, if you'd like to go first. Thanks, Emily. The first point I want to make is that a looming debt crisis in developing countries has been a growing cause for concern since the pandemic. But prior to the COVID-19 crisis, many small island developing states were already experiencing high public debt levels and vulnerabilities. Second point I want to flag is that there's a considerable degree of heterogeneity among SIDS in terms of the level and composition of external debt. Third, it's not only the debt levels that are worrying, but the fact that for several countries, growing debt service burdens means that the increasing proportion of government revenues are going towards repaying interest and principal, rather than spending on critical government priorities like adaptation, disaster risk reduction, health, and education. In addition, some countries are already experiencing liquidity problems, which means they are likely to be unable to make scheduled debt service payments due to temporary cash flow problems. These, there is a, a, a danger that these liquidity problems become solvency crises, which is when a country cannot meet its debt service obligations at all stages in the future. Thanks, Shakira. A lot to think about there. You paint a very a complex picture and multiple challenges associated with managing debt. So Shakira mentioned the kind of shocks that can influence uh, debt profile in small island developing states. And I wonder whether we could just bring the lens back out for a moment to think about that wider context. Um, in particular, the past decade or so has witnessed two what we might call once in a generation shocks, things that we don't expect to happen that often. The global financial crisis at the end of the 2000s and then the COVID-19 pandemic more recently. What are the implications of these kinds of shocks for SIDS that are trying to bring down their debt piles? And how can they navigate crises like this without building up debt excessively? In, in the SIDS contest, we are now counting 22 SIDS, which have overall accumulated external debt stock around $65 billion uh, um, debt. Collectively, as a whole, one of the most indebted group across the, the nations in the world. Maldives is a share of it, and it's a 6.2 billion economy, estimated. He has an annual budget of uh, 3.2 million, and then uh, a revenue potential of uh, 2.2 billion alone. So you already see from the, the numbers here that you are, uh, on a yearly basis, is uh, uh, chronically on a 1 billion deficit. Uh, you mentioned about the vulnerability to external shock, and we had two massive external shock. COVID-19 has produced uh, for an economy which is for uh, three-quarters reliable on tourism has uh, produced a 30% plus contraction on the overall envelope of the economy we're discussing about. We estimate every year that the slow onset of the climate uh, change, climate has already changed in Maldives, is an emergency that we are confronted with. So we are estimating that every year they will require between 800 million and $1.5 billion just to address uh, the uh, uh, gap on climate finance. The uh, debt has increased and mounting up to 7.6 billion. And this has been uh, resources that the government has been borrowed significantly uh, from the pandemic and uh, post the pandemic. Yes, the bounce back. Yes, uh, if you come today to Maldives, they welcome you with open arms. Yes, they do have uh, the solution ahead of us. It's more uh, airport infrastructure and augmenting the capabilities of Maldives to host 
from two to three million tourists a year up to seven million tourists a year. But then, of course, this creates uh, an entire social and economic pressure around it, which, of course, we need to be uh, taken into account. 46% of the debt is being uh, held in foreign currency, which has also exposed the country in Maldives to possible vulnerability in terms of currency deflatuation and, of course, the, uh, the tenor of the monetary system here. And then the service of debt is something that is looming ahead, which will constitute, in our estimation, around 18% of GDP moving forward. So in a situation like that, there is definitely an element that at times doesn't get into the eye of analysts or the immediate economists, right? The, on the measures of the debt and how you get out of the fiscal constraint, which is the political economy associated to who comes in support of Maldives when a situation of debt provides. And Maldives has been extremely well positioned in balancing its political art across partners. Here you have two major partners of the region, Indian China, which have been uh, supporting on that sense. Uh, and of course, they have managed somehow to maintain themselves afloat uh, thanks to that support. I think those parameters at one point will need to be considered, especially when rating the fiscal capability of a country to, to manage that because the political economy doesn't enter into the criteria of that kind of rating. Over to you. Do you have any specific advice for SIDS in how they deal with international financial institutions to manage their debt? more sustainably? What works and what doesn't work? What examples of good practice are there? Look, at the end of the day, maybe I should take this from the angle of the development financing architecture for, for seeds. And this is not only about international financial institutions, this is also about the donor communities, this is also about the, the overseas development assistance that comes to countries like Maldives. If until a certain time, our support to traditionally ODA has been interpreted as a top-up of resources into the financial envelope or the fiscal space of, of a state, coming with the premium of technical advisory service that is coming from the experience of a wide range of development settings. I think now it's time for us to realize that, especially in the upper-middle-income country situation, like, for example, Maldives, it's very difficult to put the case for additional ODA when globally international crises, also in terms of conflict, are creating a black hole of interest elsewhere. So you have to move out from the that kind of development assistance and UNDP has been working very hard uh, with the Ministry of Finance and new set of partners to basically do three things. One is to increase the revenue base of a country like Maldives by moving outside the ODA envelope or using the grant as a de-risking capital for SDG financing, which is moving from funding to financing. So what are the conditions that we need to create in Maldives so that we can align the strategic priorities of the country and the policies of being debt-free at the end of the day and addressing their challenges in a way that also we can solicit investment from a capital market that gets sufficient return and sufficient environmentally and socially and governance tickets in terms of dividend for that. We've been working very hard also in the realm of uh, 
tax for SDGs? Do we have the right leveling of taxation? Not only domestically, because there's only so much tax and you can tax 500,000 people, right? For this challenging we're at a global scale. But do we have the right proportion of that for the foreign direct investment? And what is the reinvestment of this income back into the economy? On the other side of the equation, of course, you look at the expenditure side of the budget. Looking at the public financial management, there are instruments like uh, blended finance uh, instruments. And we have recently uh, signed with Maldives uh, a program of, uh, called the Global Fund for Coral Reef, which looks into how 10 million worth of grant can actually solicit 40 million worth of equity options uh, into the uh, uh, conservation of coral and the economy associated to uh, the support of that, that could be ecotourism and other element. So at the end of the day, you are trying to expand the fiscal option for a government. And I think it cannot be just bad with consumable grants that gets, gets exhausted and then a new pitch is done to get a new envelope. And at times, some of this program comes with a heavy infrastructure transfer and then because they have to manage and to maintain the assets which have been transferred to them and do they have the resources for it. So I think we need to be very conscious about that. Speed of accessing climate finance is important. ODI has recently published uh, a study on this and how the global architecture of the, what we normally call vertical funds, do take some time to get access. And you can't quite entertain data gathering for years to demonstrate what you can actually verify with a trip to Maldives and see that the water reaches your knees regardless of the data that you put around it for two years to justify that. Over to you. Just to very quickly build on what Enrico said, I agree on the need to think of other sources of finance domestically and externally that are not debt, but it's important that in the context of the current debt issues that we don't make debt the villain. The debt crisis now it's related to the pandemic, it's related to deeper structural issues, it's related to the geopolitical situation and the interest rate hikes that have been happening in advanced economies. That's why a lot of developing countries right now are in this current predicament. Debt is not necessarily a bad thing, but it depends on how you lend and how you borrow and whether that is in a prudent, responsible manner. It's also, is there a, a strong debt management office in that country who's helping the government to make responsible decisions. So these are the things that are important to make the best use of debt and helping to, pr to reduce the likelihood of debt crises down the road. At the same time, no matter what, I, I'm sad to say this, but no matter what a government do, sometimes crises are inevitable due to exhaustion or shocks like the pandemic. And we really, as the international community, we need to get that right. How can we make restructuring more predictable, quicker and less painful for all? Thank you. Our thanks to Enrico Gavelia and Shakira Mustafa. That was actually just a snippet of a much longer conversation that we had with the two of them. So if you're interested to hear more or would like more detail on those different questions that we were discussing, uh, we will be uploading a longer version of that piece as special bonus content after this episode. So now we move on to our segment, No Stupid Questions. With so much misinformation around, we want to give you the opportunity to ask us any questions around the risks and challenges facing small island states. Today's Not Stupid Question is quite a straightforward one, really. Why don't SIDS just pay their debt off or get it down to a sustainable level so that they can free up more resources to spend on their priorities? What do you think to that one, Emily? 
It's an interesting one. And of course, countries with large amounts of fiscal space can over time bring down their debt burdens. That's what large developed country yep. economies, that's what their governments do, right? But this requires there to be periods of growth. So I think that's the assumption is that you're going to be producing that sort of surplus in the economy. People are going to have higher incomes and pay more tax. Of course, in SIDS, um, that's quite problematic. It's a huge problem that in a very small country, you might only have... 10, 20% of the population that are even income taxpayers because either people are working in the informal economy or they're not earning enough to pay um, significant amounts of tax. So the tax base is quite constrained as well. I suppose the comparison between big countries and SIDS is a good one because one of the answers to the question, why don't they pay off their debt, could be, why should they? Big countries don't have to. And there's an unfairness here in the sense that big countries not only can anticipate that there will be a period of growth coming up in the future that allows them to pay down any debt, but they also have a huge advantage over smaller countries. So if you look at it, the UK's debt pile is pushing towards 100% of GDP. And this is comparable to many of the most indebted SIDS. But most of it is held domestically. A lot of it is held in sterling. And the debt service ratio is much, much lower. The time frame of repayment is longer. And in general, the cost of service is low. It's still only 10% of government spending at the moment. It's only 3% of GDP. Um, and if you compare a, a country, a small country with similar amount of debt. Jamaica last year had 94% debt to GDP ratio, but its service costs are around 15% of GDP and 34% of government revenue. So essentially, it costs Jamaica 10 times as much from its government budget to service a similar amount of debt. And that has a huge impact on what Jamaica is then able to spend on social provision and government services and so on. Yeah, the other thing that is quite different in SIDS are these sort of constant, frequent climate yeah. shocks and other external shocks that like can completely destroy their economies. So the levels of debt in SIDS are quite volatile, actually. You know, in some cases, they're, well, they're very high at the moment, but they have previously, before the pandemic, actually been relatively low levels of debt, below 40%, um, which is the sort of IMF recommendation. Um, so they go up and down quite a bit. And that's due to, in many cases, extreme weather events. And yeah. we th we've spoken about this before. In Dominica, was hit by Hurricane Maria in 2017 and 226% or something like that of the economy was like wiped out overnight. Yeah. And so that's obviously going to have a huge impact on not only um, the need to borrow more to rebuild, but in their ability to um, repay their debts or just service the interest payments on debt when your economy has been um, destroyed in that way. We've just been doing some research on um, losses that can be attributed to climate change as opposed to the kind of extreme weather that have always been around. It's something like 38% of um, economic losses since the year 2000 can be attributed to climate change. And that's going to go up by about 11% wow. over the next 23 years in SIDS. So, yeah, it, it's really significant. Just trying to get your head around the figure that you mentioned just now. Just thinking what that would be in the UK context. A shock would have to hit the UK that would do something like $7 trillion worth of damage that's just inconceivable. 
And that's what, 50 times the annual NHS budget, something like that. It's just getting your head around the scale of that damage. And yet this is something that a small island can have to cope with after a shock that can take just a few hours to materialise and is actually omnipresent and is something that is not just theoretically possible. It's something that is actually quite likely in many cases. Yeah, and maybe just to continue on the theme of why it's unfair to make these comparisons with larger economies and developed countries. The other thing I think that's that affects some SIDS, if not all of them, is that they are having to borrow at commercial rates. So for the, the higher income um, small islands um, that don't have much in the way of access or zero access to official development assistance or this kind of very highly concessional finance borrowing at market rates and those are going up we know how that affects us if you're on a you're borrowing money for a mortgage and you know the interest rate goes up um it's really tough and so just on a personal note i think all of us can relate to that yeah. really difficult for the, the upper income higher income upper middle income um, SIDS and the, in the case of the Maldives with the impact of the pandemic on the um, tourism sector in the Maldives and there the credit rating was um, downgraded and so it was it became even more difficult yeah. to kind of borrow. And... They're really tough choices aren't there I mentioned Jamaica just now Jamaica's got a much higher ratio debt service ratio than the UK for a similar debt pile and that's remarkable in one way, which is that at one point Jamaica's debt was pushing towards 150% of GDP. And I think there's a bit of a paradox here, which is that on the one hand, as we said, high debt burdens crowd out other forms of government spending, um, which can lead to a bit of a crisis of confidence from the markets and exactly the kind of challenges that the Maldives has faced. But bringing down the debt burden can also further crowd out spending. So Jamaica brought its debt down quite significantly throughout the late 2010s. Um, and it had to run a huge surplus in order to gain the confidence of international investors and the IMF to do that. 7.5% of GDP, which is a huge amount. That's, that's massive amounts of spending. There isn't a developed country that runs a surplus like anywhere near that. And it's been really successful in the sense that the debt burden has come down significantly. So it has more fiscal space than it had before. But it was been very painful to achieve that, almost just as painful as it was to have a high debt burden in the first place. And in both cases, there's still a need for greater social spending. So what do you use the fiscal space for that, that you've generated? And when do you start using that fiscal space? Yeah, you've got to ask the question whether it's really worth it and I think that's a kind of bigger question about austerity and, and dealing with debt but certainly one that's been highly challenging for small economies like Jamaica um, so yeah I think it's a really important question whether it's necessarily a good thing to be focusing on bringing down quickly or radically um, high levels of debt or sort of living with it and living with those fluctuations yeah. and I guess the international financial institutions accepting the idea that SIDS are always going to have high and volatile levels of debt. Yeah exactly so they need better financing instruments that work for them and allow them to invest in development projects cheaply as is the case in bigger countries. Yeah. 
So next month on Small Islands Big Picture, we're going to be talking about the next SIDS conference coming up in May 2024 and looking ahead to the planning and preparations that will be happening in advance of that event to ask some questions about what SIDS need to be focusing on and pushing for in their 10-year agenda. And we want to hear from you. If there's anything that you think we should be covering in the podcast, please send in your questions and comments to info at odi.org.uk with small islands in the subject line. Please feel free to rate, subscribe and share. You've been listening to Small Islands Big Picture from the Resi Network at ODI. Music.